Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Hello, lovely listeners. I am fired up for an amazing episode. This one is for the lifelong learners. We dig deep into the science of learning with Peter C. Brown, author of the best-selling book, Made to Stick. In this episode, Peter's going to show us his principles for learning and remembering better, and we'll see how to turn those principles into our own learning programs, so you can teach yourself anything from playing guitar to how to quickly adapt to a new job. You've got a brain. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Let's upgrade our human OS with Peter C. Brown. business we are in business ready <laughs> to rock and roll <laughs> great i like your headset it looks like you're you're at a, a nasa space <laughs> flying station. an airplane or something yeah <laughs> i guess well, it's lear- cheap and it works so <laughs> I, I, I guess that's not too different from learning is it <laughs> uh, right, exactly we'll, we'll shoot our minds off into space then shall we <laughs> <laughs> your book is called make it stick the science of successful learning i'd love to hear your story about what sparked your inspiration to write this book and kind of your your trail and path to getting there. Starting, you could start wherever you want. You could start from when you were born. You could start from when you're in the womb. That might be hard to recall, but uh, well, I could make it up. <laughs> Here's the thing: I am a guy who gets bored fairly easily, and uh, I'm when I get intrigued by something, I I, I throw myself in it and I want to learn all about it. Um, I spent most of my um, money-making years as a management consultant working with different the management teams of different organizations, and it was a thrill to, each time I entered a new organization to learn what is their business, how do they go about it, what are the questions they're wrestling with, how can we rethink about their strategies and so forth. I've always written, and uh, when I retired from my consulting business, I decided to spend more time writing. Uh, I wrote an historical novel, which has done well. I've written uh, a couple books related to business. I was between projects, trying to figure out what I wanted to work on next. And I was chatting with my brother-in-law, whose name is Henry Rodiger. He is a cognitive psychologist at Washington University in St. Louis. He's preeminent in the field of memory and learning. And he was describing to me work that he and his associate, Mark McDaniel, and some other colleagues at other universities had done, funded by a big foundation who was eager to have empirical research into this question, what teaching and studying strategies lead to better learning and remembering of the new material. And this team of a dozen or so cognitive psychologists and their grad students and postdocs and research that they'd done over a decade or so had really revealed that what's effective is is counterintuitive. It isn't the strategies that most of us adopt. And uh, as I was talking with Roddy, Henry Rodiger goes by Roddy, my brother-in-law, about this, I got excited about it because what they found seemed to validate my own personal experience in life and how I learn best. And uh, we decided we we should work together uh, and put out a book that would put across in, in stories real-life anecdotes, uh, what the science tells us about uh, highly successful learning strategies. So that's how I got involved in it. And my role was to learn uh, the research well enough to be able to write about it and to go out and find interesting people I could talk to who could describe incidents in their lives where their learning strategies and equip them to deal with an unexpected situation and tell those stories in a way that would illustrate what the underlying science tells us about how we learn. So that's that's how the book came about. It's how I happen to get involved in it. It's really exciting hearing your path and that kind of focus because I've often found times when I've been in school that I've spent a lot of time 
reading something or working on problems or trying to figure things out and I'm probably 70% productive and then there's the 30% of my mind that's saying, am I actually doing this the best way? It seems like it could be the best way. And I know in a lot of your writing, you mentioned that there are a lot of delusions of learning that you know are kind of counterintuitive to science and sometimes what feels good and makes you think that you're having progress isn't necessarily mean that you're having progress. And some of our conceptions of maybe even what our own teachers have told us works for teaching isn't even really relevant or isn't the most effective way. What are some of those delusions and misconceptions that people have that science is telling us otherwise? Well, one example is, and it's true for 80% of college students, uh, we think that learning is uh, a matter of studying and restudying something, rereading it, underlining it, highlighting it, reading it again. Uh, and that testing is a dipstick we use to measure uh, whether we've mastered it or not. Well, it turns out that as you reread and reread something, you become very familiar with the text and you uh, assume that that means two things. Well, I apologize for the phone ringing. <laughs> no worries. Uh, I don't people, even know how people to... want to get in on this conversation. It's so good. <laughs> we have a caller. We have a caller. We have a caller coming in. <laughs> One of the things that uh, that rereading does, and that when you get familiar with the text, is you assume that you're you've learned it well and you'll remember it. The other thing is uh, often people will assume they're in, uh, have a good grasp on the underlying concepts. Well, when you do the research and you uh, present, let's say, a 250-word passage from a Scientific American uh, magazine on sea otters or something like that, and you have people uh, read this passage, students read this passage maybe six times, uh, and you have other students read it uh, maybe three times, but they're quizzed on it three times, you discover uh, when you test them later that those who've read it six times forget most of it. Hmm. And those that have been quizzed on it, have read it less, but been quizzed on it, remember far more of it. So one of the, one of the illusions of, of learning or mastery is the sense uh, that fluency with a text gives us of being on top of the material. And it isn't true that it, it doesn't stick just by trying to push it in the mind. You have to practice pulling it out of the mind in order to make it stick. Ah, so we can become so familiar with a text or with a, with a subject because we've read it so much that we think that we're, we understand it. Where right. And so what, what does that process of recall look like or that, that kind of practice? All right. Well, well, let me give you one other example. Yeah, of yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, this would be in the realm of motorsports. Let's say uh, you're a tennis player and you're trying to get get your serve, really hone your serve, or you're a golfer and you're trying to get your 20-foot putt. Our tendency is to do that serve over and over again, focusing on the results, getting it better, focusing on the, the movements and, and how you aim the ball and so forth. Um, and you can, in this practice, practice, practice mode, you can see improvements and you think, boy, this is great. I'm getting it. What you do not perceive is that those improvements are all leaning on short-term memory. They're not in long-term memory, and they, they evaporate. And when you come back and try it again, you don't have those gains that you saw in that kind of uh, repetitive, close, close, uh, redundant practice. So in both of those cases of the rereading and the what we call blocked practice, where you're uh, at it over and over again, far better is when you read something ask yourself, put it aside and ask yourself, what are the big ideas in this that, that, that matter to me? Uh, how would I put them in my own words? Just simply recalling the key ideas, if you did nothing more, will help you remember those key ideas. Uh, elaborating on them by putting them in your own words uh, helps you add a dimension to that, those ideas. And by asking yourself, how does that relate to what I already know, helps you uh, build uh, knowledge that you can later apply. So uh, retrieving from memory helps move learning from short-term memory into consolidated into long-term memory. So if you're trying to improve your putt or you're trying to improve your tennis stroke, you're better off 
doing it a couple times and going and doing something else and coming back to it later, the effort to get it again, to, re, to download it, if you will, from long-term memory, it strengthens your mastery because it consolidates that learning, making the key ideas more salient and connecting it better to things you already know. So you want to retrieve from memory new learning on a sp spaced schedule. So spread mm -hmm. it out. If, if, you're in, if you're in class, uh, what a great example is in classrooms where professors will give you a short quiz, low-stakes quiz at the end of class. And if, if that's done fairly regularly through the course, you will discover you carry forward those ideas from the early classes into the middle and the later part of the semester, and you remember it. Hmm. And this kind of relates to an idea that I know you mentioned in your book called the, the need for effortful learning. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what? The good news, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're going to make it harder? I know. <laughs> there, there's, there's tons of students being like, oh, gosh, I hope my teacher doesn't read this but, yeah. <laughs> or, or listen to this. But I'm guessing, you know, how do you differentiate between, or, or maybe you don't, but how do you think about effort for, effortful learning as being productive versus unproductive? What would be some sort of like really strenuous tasks that, you know, might seem productive, but you know, you actually should do it a little differently to be productive. Yeah, I suppose there are uh, examples in uh, people training for various kinds of uh, sports where they engage in highly uh, strenuous activities in a different sport in a sort of cross-training mode where they overdo it and it doesn't really add to their skills in the main uh, their main area of interest. Uh, when we talk about difficulty, Basically, we're saying there's certain kinds of difficulties that slow learning down. It makes these difficulties make the learning deeper and they make it last and make it stick. Hmm. We call them desirable difficulties. That's a phrase uh, coined by a cognitive psychologist at UCLA, uh, Robert Bjork. Uh, and um, difficulties that are desirable are ones that engage the brain in a little bit of a struggle uh, that's related to uh, mastery of the knowledge. A very simple example would be a pilot training, uh, looking at PowerPoint slides, which is a lot like rereading. You sit there and look at PowerPoint slides of how your your aircraft is organized and what happens uh, if the gas line freezes up. What do you do? Compare that to being in a flight simulator. You, you're simulating flying at 39,000 feet. All of a sudden, you're getting alarms that you're not getting any fuel, and you have to know what to do. Why is that? You have to turn on the fuel filter bypass because you've got ice in the fuel filter. This That's a difficulty, is learning through a simulator. A simulator, the notion there is a difficulty that simulates the conditions in which you are going to need to apply the learning at a later time. Those are desirable difficulties. I'd love to s break down if, if we, you know, could list some of the things that could turn learning into desirable difficulties. Yeah, so, I can do that very easily. So I'll, I'll do that. Should I do that now? Yeah. Okay. So desirable difficulties. Here's some examples of desirable difficulties. One is uh, something that cognitive psychologists call generation, and that is trying to generate the answer to a problem before you've been taught how. S so um, this involves you searching your mind. What kind of a problem is this? Is it like something I already know? Uh, and you take a stab at it, you try a different way, you might make mistakes. But then when you're shown the solution, you, you learn that solution better and you remember it longer. So trying to solve a problem before you're being taught how is a desirable difficulty, provided you are shown the solution and you're given corrective feedback. That's a, a form of mental effort or struggle. Mm -hmm. Another uh, desirable difficulty is uh, practicing retrieving from memory and spacing it out. So we call it spaced retrieval practice. Uh, it's like having um, flashcards and uh, going through your flashcards, but uh, mixing them up and going through them once a week, you know, once a month, whatever, whatever uh, spacing out that practice of retrieving something from memory. 
Mm -hmm. Another kind of desirable difficulty is what in the book we call interleaving, and that is studying two different kinds of problems or more than two uh, back and forth when you're studying, so you alternate between them. Let's say you're studying uh, solid geometry and you've learned how to find the volume of a sphere. And it's a particular solution, a particular formula. And you're, you're also you're learning how to find the volume of a wedge and, let's say, of a cone. Um, instead of practicing uh, 15 examples of uh, finding the volume of a cone and then 15 examples of finding the volume of a sphere and then a wedge, it's better to mix them up in a kind of a either go back and forth in a regular manner or, or do them randomly so that each time one comes to you, you have to recall what kind of problem it is and what was the correct solution for that problem. That kind of practice, uh, you don't perform as well as you do when practice uh, comes, you know, 15 examples in a row of one and then 15 of another. Uh, but um, when you come to take the test, you far outperform those who have done block practice. So that's a desirable difficulty, mixing it up. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Were there were there any other desirable difficulties? <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are none that come to mind just at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what about the simulator? What are like, you know, I'm sure there could be so many different types of simulations. What makes a really good simulation in terms of a desirable difficulty? Well, a really good simulation is a simulation that uh, has a couple attributes. One, it's... Uh, it's reasonably realistic. Uh, two, it uh, it mimics the conditions that you would find in real life uh, at the time when you want to be applying this skill. And three, uh, the problem you don't know what the problems are until they occur. So uh, they require you to identify what kind of problems you're facing and uh, come up with the correct solutions and apply them. So this might be uh, flying a plane and having something come up in flight. It might be uh, a medical student who's uh, trying to diagnose a patient. Uh, and it could be a, an actor patient or it could be a dummy, uh, a smart dummy they have in medical school. Um, it could be a cop who is in a simulation room where at one end of the wall they have a video screen screen and the cop is entering into uh, the scene uh, with a, a weapon that is uh, somehow electronically uh, connected to the simulation and uh, there may be um, been called to a scene of a domestic and there's a person on a porch with a gun and the cop says drop the gun and instead the person holds the gun and turns away. What does the cop do? That's a simulation or a traffic stop simulation. Any of those kinds of situations where um, you, are, uh, you are called upon to figure out what the, what the lay of the land is and what you should be doing and then you uh, do what, whatever it is you do and then you get feedback from it. Th those are great learning exercises and they're great ways also of knowing whether you're on top of your game. Gotcha. And so with the interleaving, you know, you're saying practice in one chunk, then do two other types of problems in the middle, then go back to it. Does it matter what sort of other content you do in between the studying? Is there, should it be kind of similarly related or differently related? Dan, that's a great question. Uh, the research into this is pretty new. It turns out, uh, it seems from some recent studies, that the, the, the larger benefits from uh, mixed practice happen when the various uh, problem types are similar. They're in the same general field, let's say. You're not switching between your uh, Italian vocabulary practice and your solid geometry uh, examples, but you're switching maybe between your Italian uh, verb conjugation and your Italian vocabulary and some um, uh, dialogue practice with an instructor and going back and forth. Um, so that's one answer. Yes, it it seems like you want to be mixing it up within the overall field that you're uh, studying. Um, it, and it, it, there's no uh, particular magic to whether it's one or two or three things you're interleaving. If you think about, um, I have a friend who's uh, big on basketball and um, they run drills and at different points on the court they do different things every time on a drill. So he's saying to me, yeah, we mix it up. We do different things as we do the drill. Well, what they don't realize is they're 
at each place on the court, they're always doing the same thing at that place. If they really were mixing it up, they would mix up the, the point at which you do these different things and the sequence in which you, you do these different things. That's mixing it up. That's interleaving. That's what's sharpening your, uh, your perceptions and your skills and, and your learning. One of the great studies that I read in writing this book was these uh, grade school kids who for 12 weeks were throwing bean bags into baskets. And one group of kids threw every week into, um, every recess period into a basket that was three feet away. And the other group threw into, sometimes into two foot baskets and sometimes into four foot baskets. And when the 12 weeks of practice were over, they were all tested on throwing into the three foot basket. And the kids that did best hadn't thrown into the three foot basket. They'd thrown into the two foot and the four foot. They had developed a more sophisticated understanding of judging distance and the motor skills required to hit the basket than the kids who had repeatedly tried the same three foot basket. This is counterintuitive. But when you mix it up, your brain is stimulated to uh, uh, create a more complex uh, architecture, if you will, of the problem and the solution. And in fact, there's some evidence that that more complex uh, learning is stored in a, a part of the brain where complex motor skills are stored versus simple motor skills. Cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> just totally cool. <laughs> okay, so a lot of the people who are listening are lifelong learners. Some are students, but a lot of them are really in the middle of their career and hoping to get better at their work or their hobbies or really trying to learn in many different ways. So I'd love to go through a couple examples of what could be a self-paced curriculum and apply these desirable difficulties to how this curriculum could be designed. And again, the desirable difficulties are doing a good simulation of what it's like in real life, generation, recalling an answer before you get a solution or a problem, um, practicing retrieval, interleaving. So are you ready to do a couple uh, self-paced curriculums and Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm I'm game. I could tell you <laughs> I could tell you one that I used myself yeah. uh, when I started writing. Uh, I was uh, trying to learn to write fiction, and I was in a course on fiction writing, and some of my other fellow writers had spent years writing novels, and they were trying to figure out what was wrong with their novels, and I didn't want to do that, because I could see a big chunk of my life disappearing before <laughs> I knew what I was doing, and so I started writing short stories, and I said to myself, Peter, every short story is going to be a failure here in the beginning, uh, but each one is going to teach you something that you won't do in the next one, and so I would write a story, bring it to class, we'd go through it, and I'd realize what it was that I needed to know, and I wouldn't commit that same error the next time. And that that was a series of practice events of generation, if you will, and feedback and uh, desirable difficulties, if there, any, if there ever were uh, any, uh, that helped me come up to speed a lot quicker, I think, than um, if I had just undertaken some big project and spent my time reading about the craft instead of actually doing it and making the errors and learning from them. Awesome. So let, let's take learning guitar, for instance. Um, it seems like the best practice would be to um, space out the, the learning, would also be to, I'm not sure, how would you, <laughs> how would you design, you know, what are, what are the components that you would put into learning a guitar that would really ingrain the learning into yourself? Well, now I'm going to be in the mode of speculation. We've had a lot of emails from people in, uh, who teach music who've been very excited about this book. And I, before you and I talked, I probably should have gone back and reread some of those notes. But I think the idea would, would be to vary your practice. Uh, you might speed it up, you might slow it down, uh, you might uh, practice different uh, pieces of music or different uh, guitar skills uh, instead of doing something uh, over and over again. Uh, I learned something of this by interviewing an 88-year-old uh, keyboard pianist who uh, is still learning and performing classical works. And she talked about uh, four levels of learning. She learns by uh, looking at the score, so her eyes can see how the score works. 
She learns it by ear as she fingers through the piece of music. Uh, she um, learns it by touch, if you will, how her hands are on the keyboard as she plays. And then uh, the last one is where there are difficult passages, she spends time working out the fingering and thinking through it. So she has, uh, if you will, she'll, she has a, a four-level elaboration on the problem. She can elaborate, elaborate on it at four different levels. And she does her practice, but then she goes away. She'll be says she'll be driving down the highway, and uh, her mind will, will be knitting at this problem. And she'll realize there's a better way to do that fingering than what she was trying to figure out. It was something she'd done some years earlier in another piece. Her brain then, because she's engaged in it, her, her brain is working at it, even when she's not, if you take my meaning. And this is true of anything we're trying to learn. Once we're struggling with the problem and got it started, we can be sleeping, we can be off riding a bike, and the brain will still be working at it and offering up uh, some ideas and solutions. Uh, so I don't see that music is particularly different from other kinds of skills in that regard. Uh, you want to uh, practice uh, in a spaced out way and you want to mix your practice of pieces and you want to give it time for the learning to go from short-term memory to long-term memory, and that takes hours or, or even longer. How would you approach learning in a self-paced curriculum for something that's less practice but more sort of knowledge-based, such as, let's say, the fundamentals of artificial intelligence? Because there's all these different perspectives that need to be taken into account, and, you know, what would the curriculum differ for something like that? Uh, okay, well, that's an interesting challenge. It's highly abstract, artificial intelligence. So you're not building robots. Uh, this isn't a, a course in how to build a robot. It's more a course in understanding how artificial intelligence, what it is and how it works, uh, how to write code maybe. Um, that's an interesting challenge. I guess uh, for me, if I were taking that on, I would uh, list. I would start listing a, a, a number of questions that I had about artificial intelligence, and then I would start doing some reading, with a point of reading to find the answers to the questions. So I wasn't just uh, going broadly uh, in a, a sort of a meandering way through the literature. I would be very specific about my questions, try to get them answered. And as I was and learning, what types of questions would you have? Would it be well, what is artificial really, intelligence? What do you I mean, want what, to learn? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what does it entail? If, I, if I'm interested in artificial intelligence, possibly I have some kind of a idea of how I might use artificial intelligence if I were going to be writing it, writing code and, and, putting, in, and putting it in some kind of a device. So uh, I think that if, when you uh, – let me, let me just make a little bit of a – Metaphor. Now, this is a kind of an interesting metaphor. It just occurs to me now. So I wrote a novel. It was set in 1895 uh, on a farm in Minnesota. I, I needed to know uh, how people farmed, what kinds of tools they used day to day. When they plowed, if the soil changed, how did they adjust the plow? How did they get a straight line? Uh, what was the role of steam power? How did they, uh, you know, so I had this a form of intelligence that is uh, foreign to me and is not much used anymore. And uh, so I ended up um, with a huge number of questions. My questions were focused around where my characters were in, in the story and what they wanted to do. And then I would go on about my business of finding the answers to those questions with a lot of work on the internet, a lot of work physically going to these places, going to old museums. The key idea there is you have something in mind that you want to vivify, if you will. You want to bring it to life, uh, whether it's a novel or some kind of artificial intelligence. And in order to do that, you need knowledge that you don't have. And the, the, then the learning is, what knowledge do I need and how do I go get it? And then you go after it and then you start working with it. When you start working with that information, writing it in your, in your novel or writing your code, you discover, you know, it isn't quite right or it doesn't work as well as you want. There's something missing or, uh, bang, you got that one just right, but it leads to something else. So I think that the, that the question there really is one of... What are you trying to accomplish and what do you need to know in order to get there? And you only know as you peel away at answering those questions. But we do know you learn something and you remember it better when you read 
with the starting with the question and reading for the answer. Rather than, um, let's say you want to write a historical novel, you just read a lot of history in the period you want to write about. You could read forever and never write your novel. It's better to get your characters moving and say, I've got a problem. I don't know what it looked like then or how they did such and so. Then you start going and finding the answer to your question, and, and it works. So that kind of learning in a very abstract field, artificial intelligence, I think, would be very commensurate with trying to trying to populate and, and uh, animate uh, a fictional scene in an historical novel in a place that you've never been. How would you create a self-paced curriculum for introspection and learning about yourself? <laughs> but, oh, man, you, you're Mr. Challenge today. <laughs> uh, I, this you may know, not be your, this isn't your, your, field of expertise. So yeah, no, I, yeah, it really it, it isn't exactly. But I, I would just say, again, it's a, it's a matter of, of identifying what it is you want to know and then figuring out where the sources are and, and um, whether the sources are going to be things you read or whether it's going to be people you talk to or things you experiment and then get feedback on. Um, uh, I can't speak too much more to it than that. It's just that someone who is highly self-motivated is highly likely to uh, get to the other end of that quest by following the questions. And that might take you, then you have to say, what are the resources that are going to help me answer those questions? And uh, often it's other people and often it's literature. Sometimes it's just going out and trying something and seeing what happens. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sorry, these are, these are kind of silly questions. Well, um, they're not silly questions. I think that, I mean, I, the thing I like about your questions, Dan, is that they recognize the fact that wherever we are in life, we're always learning. And when we're a curious person, the curiosity is a, is a tremendous motor f for us to go uh, satisfy ourselves through new knowledge and skills. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I love it. Uh, it's just how you quantify that uh, uh, is difficult. The, the, the common currency of it is that engaging the mind in wrestling with the material is how you learn. So the things that cause you to wrestle with it and, and uh, struggle with it a little bit are the things that lead you on and begin to build those mental connections and mental models that take you to the next step. What are your thoughts on like a self-paced curriculum to become more courageous or more, more virtuous? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that uh, what I would do would be this doesn't relate at all to the research that's reported in Make It Stick. This is a personal response, and I'm sure I could find connections. But I would – one of the big things about uh, ourselves as learners is whether we know as much as we think we know, this issue of how, whether we're good judges of what we know and what we can do. And if I were looking at courage and virtue, uh, and I were seriously interested in – uh, understanding how I might have more of those attributes, I think I would start by uh, finding some people who I would consider to be mentors in those areas. And I would spend some time talking with them about their values and the way that their values are personified in their lives. And then I would uh, ask myself, are these things that I think I want to do or could do? And if so, uh, I'd make a little plan for um, exp for experiential learning, where I set myself in a situation where I could try on some of these some of these strategies that I'm learning from my mentors. Awesome. And so, a lot of those questions were focused on self-paced curriculum. Moving to the classroom. What would, how would you design the ideal college classroom? What would it look like and um, how would you ensure that it promoted effective learning? Well, it's different for every subject, but there's some, some common ground. I think uh, one of the things that the science has shown uh, unequivocally is that uh, frequent low-stakes quizzing in the course of a, of a uh, uh, semester 
uh, or college term is a very powerful tool for locking in learning and carrying it forward as you go march through the semester. So if I were talking to a professor, I would encourage that professor to put aside time, if not in every class, at least frequently, a uh, simple low-stakes quiz in that as the, as, the, as the course progressed through the term, some of the questions in those quizzes would be from earlier in the term so that you're reaching back and carrying forward. And that uh, rigor of retrieving from memory, uh, even at the small level of a low-stakes quiz, has a compounding effect. It's like interest in the bank account. Uh, every time you retrieve something that you learned earlier, it's updated with what you've learned since. And you build uh, your knowledge accrues in a way that, that it simply doesn't if all you've done is read the chapter way back then and come to it again at the midterm or at the final. So this kind of retrieval practice that is structured by the professor is very powerful. And while students often um, express uh, some displeasure at it when they start, by the end of the semester, uniformly, they're saying, I wish I had this in all my classes because I don't have to cram at the end. In some classes, they don't even give a final exam. They just, there are nine quizzes. Each one is 10% of your grade, and the other 10% is the professor's discretion. Uh, so that would be first and foremost. Another thing I would do, and perhaps even before that, is I would encourage a professor to teach students how learning works. The futility of spending many hours in rereading material or trying to get the syntax of a lecture exactly right in memory, uh, to how to engage in uh, retrieval practice and self-quizzing, uh, how to differentiate uh, between illusions of learning and true learning by testing yourself. Um, other strategies that are highly effective, uh, th there's a passage in Make It Stick um, in which uh, I write about an interview with a professor of biology at the at, um, University of Washington in Seattle, Dr. Mary Pat Wonderoth. And uh, she uses all kinds of strategies with her students that involve um, retrieval practice, reflection, uh, drawing schematics in which they show the interrelationship between the different uh, physiological parts that they've been studying, uh, maybe a learning paragraph at the end of the week when they reflect on uh, all that's been covered in the class in the week. Uh, that passage, I think, is a, a stands uh, up for me as a, as a model of how to apply the science of learning in the in the college classroom. Dr. Wen I found Dr. Winteroth because I was looking online to see what educators were saying about the science of learning, who was talking about it. And she had followed the research by a number of these cognitive psychologists and started applying it in her classroom uh, to great effect. So um, I think it's the varied forms of retrieval practice in helping students discover the power that retrieval practice has in locking in the learning and relieving them of the tedium of countless rereadings of notes and, and textbook chapters. You've mentioned retrieval practices a couple times. Could you maybe codify for us the components of an effective retrieval practice? Sure. Uh, read a paragraph uh, in a textbook and put it aside and ask yourself, what did it say? That's retrieving from memory what you just read. And then uh, ask yourself, okay, it said all those things, but what's really important in this, in this paragraph? What is the, the germ mm -hmm. of this paragraph that's important to what I'm learning here? Uh, netting it out. So retrieval practice basically is retrieving something from memory. Let me just describe briefly about memory. When you encounter something new, it's in the hippocampus part of the brain, and your, your brain's trying to make sense of it. It's, it's kind of plastic, and it's, it's filling in gaps and, and uh, rehearsing it, and slowly, over hours, moves it into long-term learning, where it gets connected to what you already know. When you go searching for that knowledge tomorrow or a week from tomorrow and try to remember to call up or download from long-term memory. What was that and what were those ideas? 
the effort to do that, assuming you are successful at recalling it, makes that learning plastic again, and it makes the key ideas even stronger and the pathways to that learning stronger and its connections to things you know stronger. And that's retrieval practice, retrieving something from memory which strengthens the memory itself and the ability to find it later when you need it. Awesome. So let's say you have a student who has just graduated and he comes up to you and he says, Peter, I just started my job and I feel like I had all this great structured learning that was happening at school, but now I'm off on my own and there's all these tasks coming my way and I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Like, what are three things, three practices I should do every week that will help me really make sure that I'm learning on the job? And this could be learning in terms of, you know, actual work, best methods to work. It could also be learning in terms of embodying feedback from the boss or learning teamwork and collaboration. You know, what would be three practices that could get a working professional on a good learning path? I would, uh, this is off the cuff. I would say three things. Number one, try to learn where your job and responsibility, where your contribution fits into the success of the larger institutional organizations that you're working for. That might mean you need to do a little uh, reading up or discussing with people what the business is about or what the institution is about and why this part that you're in is important to it. But it's, it's really useful to know why you're there and what your what's important about your contribution. Another thing that's really important and is consistent across uh, people that I spoke to who were highly skilled at learning, and that is uh, taking time on a regular basis to reflect on what you did and how it went and how you might make it go better next time. An example is a neurosurgeon with the Mayo Clinic I spoke to who was having trouble repairing a soft tissue sinus inside the skull. And uh, he would uh, spend time every time he encountered that problem and say, well, okay, this is how it went. I still have this problem. Maybe if I change the size of my stature. And over a period of time, he invented a solution to the problem that isn't taught anywhere, but is highly effective. And he told me a little story of an instance in which he had to employ it unexpectedly, and it was, it was successful. So the, so the second point to your question of three things you would do is to engage in regular reflection on what you've done and how you might do it better, what you might need to know that you didn't know at the time, next time you come along, what you might need to learn, and so forth. Um, the third thing uh, I would do, uh, and this is just hearkening back to my own experiences working in a large corporation, is uh, I would uh, look at what the institution offers in the way of training programs, management training programs or skill training programs. And I would look for ones uh, where I might be able to broaden my skill base in some areas that weren't necessarily strictly tied to my job function. Because broadening your skills gives you more choices both inside the organization as well as outside if you move to another institution. Now, I want to just take a break and shut my door because someone's using a weed whip. Just a second. <laughs> <laughs> Go right ahead. It's kind of, a, kind of a funny little interview we're doing with all these little things that are coming. I know, I know. We're, we're keeping lean, lean mean and, and staying on our feet. What would you say are three must-read or see resources for people who want to direct their own learning? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. Uh, that Make It Stick is um, available uh, in four formats. It's a physical book, it's an e-book, it's an audio book in two different forms. It's uh, also being translated so far into eight different languages. And it is based on this most recent research into the question of uh, what makes learning successful and makes it stick. Um, but certainly there are many books that are really great. A couple that I really liked when I was doing my studying to write this book. One is The Power of Habit by 
Charles Duig. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. I think it's, D, it, it's spelled D-U-H-I-G-G. But the book is The Power of Habit. One of the reasons I like that book is because uh, highly effective learning strategies are things that that are not really cumbersome once you develop the habit of of reflection and retrieval practice and so forth. Uh, and uh, he gives great insight into what it takes to create habits and break habits. Another book I think that's very effective uh, is um, that we can all learn from, and despite its title, is called How Children Succeed. And one of the notions in that book he uh, writes about uh, comes from a cognitive psychologist named Carol Dweck at Stanford University. And she's uh, she has her own book called Mindset. Mindset. Uh, Dweck's work basically tells... We, we understand that we all have the gift of our genes that are highly influenced in our intellectual abilities by our genetic makeup. But what, we, what we've also discovered in, over recent years is that we have some considerable influence over our intellectual abilities by uh, highly effective learning strategies that build new connections in the brain, build new mental models. Uh, and what Carol Dweck has discovered that, is that when people understand that struggling with new material helps build their abilities, even if they fail to succeed, then they tend to pick more difficult challenges and they do a lot better. They, they do better in school and they do better in life. When people, other people believe that their abilities are defined by their genes, they pick challenges that they'll succeed at, and they won't pick challenges they're likely to fail at because that failure would seem to be an indictment of their native abilities. So this idea of a growth mindset, when we have a growth mindset, that means we welcome challenges. We don't look at, at setbacks as failure. We look at it as information. And this would be true throughout, um, throughout life and clearly seen in places like Silicon Valley with the great innovation that's going on there or some of the fields that you're interested in in, in the computer field. So those would be uh, Make It Stick, uh, The Power of Habit, How Children Succeed, uh, and you get a good dose of Carol Dweck and Paul Thomas, How Children Succeed. And if you are inclined, you could get Mindset by Carol Dweck and read that. There are many others. And in, in our endnotes of our book, we list others as well. And speaking of, my, of mindset and facing challenges, I have one more last question for you. What are some of the biggest unanswered questions you have? Uh, well, how am I going to get my next novel written is one of them. Uh, <laughs> I'll find an answer. The answer is going to come by wading into it and engaging my mind in it, and then uh, I will begin to find my way. Uh, in the area of education or of learning, um, I guess there's a couple of things. One is what neuroscience will tell us about how the brain works. We know from cognitive science what works like these strategies, we know they work, but we don't know the mechanics in the brain. So I think it's going to be really interesting some years down the road here when uh, neuroscience and cognitive science can give us the full picture. Uh, the, the area of, of learning, uh, I was asking one of my co-authors about that question, you know, what, what's the front edge of the field here? And one of the issues is how, uh, one of the questions is how are learners different in ways that matter? And uh, I'll write briefly about it in the book. One is that some people are better when they see examples of different types of birds, for example, of, of deducing what the common elements are that differentiate thrashers from songbirds, for example, and from differentiate them from woodpeckers. They're called rule learners because they understand kind of the rule of what makes a thrasher versus what makes a, a songbird. So when they see an example that they're not familiar with, they can think about their rules and say, well, I think that's a thrasher. Other people aren't good at that. Other people are example learners. They learn each of those birds that they studied and they memorize what they are. And when they see a bird they didn't study, they don't know what it is. They don't have the, they haven't you know inferred the rules of what makes a thrasher versus what makes a songbird. So one question is, 
how can people who are not rule learners become rule learners so that they can deduce uh, or infer uh, those underlying attributes? Um, a second area of study, which is related, some people are good at, at uh, what the scientists call structural learners than others. A structural learner is someone who will read a, a new um, treatise, for example, in an area of interest and say, um, I can weed out all kinds of stuff here, but there's three parts of this treatise that are really critical to what I already know and extend my ability. And they become a part of my mental model. Uh, and uh, other people uh, read the treatise and they can't weed anything out. They can't differentiate the really important stuff from the not important stuff. And I use in the, in the book, I use the model of, a, I think, a Lego town or something like that, learning how to understand the difference between, you know, uh, the elements of a house and a house itself and the role of a house on a street and the role of the street versus a hospital. And uh, those are all structures. And the people who are high structure builders are able to ascertain when they read something how the pieces fit with their current knowledge and extend their sense of knowledge. So now suddenly they understand what a city is as opposed to all these individual elements. So those are two areas where research are going to be, is going to be very interesting because if they discover what makes someone a good structural learner or a good rule learner, and then we can begin to teach that, a lot of people who don't know how to do that will become better at doing it. Awesome. Any closing thoughts as we wrap up? I don't. I just would say people like you, Dan, who have a lot of energy and curiosity are the ones out front. And I applaud you for what you do and the way that you bring news and insights to your, your listeners. It's great. I'm, I'm a fan. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate it. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. And we've survived the, uh, the audio <laughs> breakups and the... <laughs> That's life, isn't we it? We made it through. Hey, we're learning. We're learning. We'll probably shut the door beforehand before the interview next time. Some and, of those uh, are probably desirable difficulties because we had to ask ourselves, where were we? And come back to the point and get back on. Uh, <laughs> it was a great practice in uh, retrieval. Definitely. Well, thank you, Peter. This, this was a, a very enlightening and also heartwarming talk. I always love speaking with educators who are passionate and you exude so much energy <laughs> in well, the way you, you talk do about too. learning. You do too. It's been a pleasure for me. Thanks. Thank you. Have an awesome day and um, yeah, we'll see you around. This podcast is and always will be ad-free, but we rely on listeners like you to show us the love and subscribe. It helps others find the show, so please write us a review on the App Store by going to make.sc slash podcast review. You can also go to make.sc slash podcast to see the show notes, and we invite you to leave comments, join in on the discussion, and tell us what you think of the episode. Join us for our next episode on Empathy with Roman Kuznarek on the extreme sport of understanding others. Mm -hmm.